And home for the Giants, one of the most spectacular vistas on this continent, any continent. Downtown San Francisco in the background, and we zoom into Candlestick Park in the southeastern corner of this city for the first time in 27 years a World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park the Battle of the Bay continues game three of the 1989 World Series the Oakland Athletics against the San Francisco Giants I'm Al Michaels welcome to game three it's been dominant Oakland pitching of course in the first two games so Roger Craig has made some changes in the Giants lineup Ken Oberkfell the great pinch hitter will start at third base Matt Williams moves from thir third base to shortstop Jose Uribe is on the bench Pat Sheridan takes over for Candy Maldonado in right field now the Giants of course are faced with a formidable task having to win four or five in essence to win the world title it has become less uncommon though in recent years for teams to overcome a two love deficit most recently it was done by the New York Mets in 1986 against the Boston Red Sox and it was done the year before as well in 1985 by Kansas City against St. Louis so the Giants tonight will be sending Don Robinson to the mound and for Oakland it will be Bob Welch and there's no designated hitter in effect in the National League Park let me turn now to Tim McCarver and you know Tim we talked in game one the final score was five nothing but there was a key early play involving Terry Kennedy dropping a throw from Will Clark at the play we go back to game two the score was five to one but there were two key plays early in that one as well well you don't often think of key plays in a five to one ball game but let's go back to the top of the third inning will Clark the batter the Giants have not had the lead in these two games a three two count a split finger fastball by Mike Moore pounced on by Terry Steinbach the Oakland catcher but look at the tough throw that he had to complete the play with Brett Butler running between him and Clark Flash forward to the bottom of the fourth inning. Dave Parker barely by inches just misses a home run. Candy Maldonado with the hesitation allowing Jose Canseco to score and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take. take I'll tell you what we're having a Still available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. 
Well there. How are you, friends? My name's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seat Still Available. Thank you for finding us. My goodness. Uh, yes, of course, you know, this is the place to uh, revel in what used to be in professional sports. That's our little uh, our little want in life, and uh, we appreciate to no end uh, you uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, uh, streaming us, doing whatever it might take uh, to ingest uh, this week's really interesting episode. Uh, that clip kind of sets the tone, perhaps the most famous among a whole bunch of famous events to have occurred at the legendary, I, I think that qualifies, uh, depending on uh, the time and the place and the team and the event you might have been there for, Candlestick Park. Yes, the stick in uh, the southern corner there of San Francisco proper. Uh, the longtime home, the first time home of the San Francisco, well, not really the first time, the, the very first uh, specific uh, built for home of the San Francisco baseball giants. Yes, when they moved from New York, uh, of course, they didn't start in Candlestick Park um, until 1960. The Giants, of course, moved in the late uh, the late 50s. Uh, the uh, construction of the park, however, was uh, begun in 1958 and uh, was a little uh, a little treacherous in the beginning, a little, uh, little sidelines with some um, some uh, questionable uh, bidding uh, for, for said uh, uh, project. But of course, the uh, New York baseball giants would not have moved to San Francisco without the guarantee that there would be a brand new ballpark for them uh, eventually. And that's what uh, began in 1960 on April 12th, first ever game played by the San Francisco giants in that new park known as the stick or candlestick park. Of course, uh, it uh, became uh, well known for football as well, certainly in the 1980s, for sure. The San Francisco 49ers, uh, after uh, a number of years at old Kizar Stadium in, in San Francisco proper uh, in the Golden Gate Park there, uh, made it their home and, of course, uh, brought with them uh, NFL uh, desires in terms of uh, filling out the stadium and encasing it uh, sort of all the way around and and, and artificial turf. Uh, which they brought along in the 1970s earlier on that that uh, experiment was uh, uh, luckily uh, disbanded uh, in the latter part of the decade. But uh, there's probably no more memorable event uh, that uh, Candlestick Park was uh, famous for or maybe infamous for than what you just heard in that uh, that set of clip. Of course, uh, that was the very dramatic and that was literally what occurred. That's what you heard and saw on ABC television. Um, on um, uh, a fateful evening, uh, late afternoon, uh, on October 17th, 1989, a 7.1 on the Richter scale known as now Loma Prieta earthquake that struck San Francisco just as the third game of that year's World Series between the Oakland A's and the homestanding San Francisco Giants was getting ready to get underway. Jim Palmer... Uh, was uh, kind of going over some of the uh, the game uh, highlights from the first two games, setting up the tone for uh, what was going to be game three. And Al Michaels, uh, the play-by-play uh, -play announcer and host for both uh, for that uh, for that uh, game, and you heard what happened. Literally, that earthquake just uh, decimating uh, uh, the region, uh, breaking up the game. Uh, of course, it was continued ten days later in the A's won uh, the final two games of that series to sweep uh, the San Francisco Giants. But uh, make no mistake, that was 
a, a, a very memorable moment and very scary moments. And of course, tragic uh, regionally, of course, in the Bay Area happened at Candlestick Park. And we're going to get into all those kinds of events. Lots of interesting stories around the Giants, uh, the 49ers, a little bit of Oakland Raiders in there. Uh, the uh, San Francisco Golden Gate Gales of the United Soccer Association makes an appearance and uh, some very interesting uh, outside of sports events uh, and much, much more. With our guest this week, Steve Travers, uh, as we talk about uh, Candlestick Park, uh, the book that he has written uh, came out a couple of years back called Remembering the Stick, Candlestick Park from 1960 to 2013. And um, let's put it this way. Uh, Candlestick Park was uh, memorable for lots of different reasons. Some of them fun and and positive and and championship like for sure, uh, but uh, certainly <laughs> some some less than uh, 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 wonderful memories too. Uh, windy, yeah, it was certainly that. Uh, foggy, oh, on on more than one occasion for sure. Uh, cold, oh boy, it certainly had its reputation for being cold. Uh, and, uh, and all kinds of, uh, other sort of, um, uh, little idiosyncrasies, shall we say for this park, I think, uh, depending on your perspective, depending on the team that you're rooting for, depending on the time you were rooting for the team, uh, in the San Francisco Bay area that inhabited candlestick park, either loving cherished memories, uh, maybe uh, a few forgetful ones or ones that you want to forget, uh, and tragic, uh, in some respects as well. All of those and more is our conversation this week as we get into the, uh, you know, I, you know, with 40, 50 year history or so, 53 year history or so of the uh, wonderful and oft uh, maligned Candlestick Park uh, with Steve Travers. We get into that conversation in a few moments time. Interesting stuff for sure coming your way. Our uh, sponsor this week, we spin the wheel and we land on our pals at OldSchoolShirts.com, where, of course, for 10% off all your purchases, you're going to use that promo code GOODSEATS. Yes, GOODSEATS, the uh, promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. Just tremendous stuff. You know, this is the uh, the treasure trove of, of great T-shirts that uh, keeps on giving uh, more and more fun and cool stuff added all the time. Uh, it's sports teams and leagues. Uh, all kinds of city commemorations, but also various collections, dead malls or ice cream uh, parlors of sorts, mascots, uh, beer, amusement parks, uh, all uh, local horror hosts, perhaps nightclubs or radio stations that you may remember of the past, and certainly stadiums, among other things, at OldSchoolShirts.com. It's, it's a great pop culture history, and uh, you can commemorate those wonderful memories in, in commemorative T-shirt form. Uh, and uh, as uh, as I'm uh, sort of scrolling here, the stadiums tab will take you to all kinds of great stadiums. Now, interestingly, uh, you'll see, uh, you know, a shirt uh, devoted to the uh, Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, the Igloo. Uh, there's a Disco Sucks shirt uh, commemorating the old Comiskey Park. Uh, there is uh, an Astrodome shirt in there. There's a Vet shirt for Philadelphia fans. Uh, all kinds of great stadium shirts. Uh, from the past Bush Memorial Stadium and uh, maybe Memorial Stadium in Baltimore or the old Georgia Dome or the old Atlantic County, Fulton County Stadium, the Murph, Jack Murphy Stadium. But alas, time to guilt and shame our pal P.F. Wilson and his pals there at OldSchoolShirts.com. There is not one in the collection for Candlestick Park. Can you believe that? 
Uh, so uh, let's uh, put a little uh, note out there uh, to uh, our pals out in Cincinnati to get hop to in it uh, and creating at some point relatively soon, perhaps because of this episode, a commemorative shirt for Candlestick Park. Don't you think it should be remembered? I do for sure. But until that happens, how about the Cincinnati Gardens? How about Three Rivers Stadium? How, how about RFK Stadium? All of those and more, as well as a ton of other things teams, leagues, and all kinds of logos and all kinds of memorabilia commemorated in great t-shirt form at our pals at oldschoolshirts.com. I, I don't mean to give them stick, frankly. Stick, yeah, I do. I, you know, sort of. Candlestick, for that matter. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, we, indeed, check them out. You're going to love them. They're just wonderful people and wonderful uh, items there. And again, when you're at oldschoolshirts.com, make sure to use early and often that promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Thank you, PF. Thank you, uh, all the good people at oldschoolshirts.com. Now get on that Candlestick Park shirt ASAP, will you? Come on, we've got lots of fans who are just dying to get a shirt to commemorate. What we're going to be talking about coming up right now, here it is, our chat with Steve Travers as we remember the stick, Candlestick Park, that is. Here's our conversation we had just a couple of days back. Please, as always, enjoy. I guess the question I would sort of maybe start with is um, maybe you can regale our audience a little bit about your background and perhaps how the uh, Candlestick Park saga story remembrance uh, hit your radar enough to uh, commit it to uh, a book uh, in form. Well, I was I was born in San Francisco in 1959. Um, I actually... Uh, I, although I don't remember it because I was a baby, but I, I was at uh, Seal Stadium. And when Candlestick was built, um, I attended games there from a very early age with my dad, who was a huge baseball fan and introduced me to baseball. And it was obvious that I was good at baseball from, from an early age. And so I I just gravitated to the game and and I lived in Marin County, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. And that was the team, at least before Oakland got there. My first memory that I I could identify with, uh, I don't know what year it was, but I was with my my father and my grandfather. And I remember watching the, the Giants play the Cincinnati Reds. And I recall... Uh, those Reds uniforms, they're actually kind of been uh, reproduced, uh, but they were the old pinstripe um, without sleeves uniforms and with white hats. And Pete Rose was probably playing second base. And I think Juan Marshall was pitching. And I just, you know, those were memories that were seared into my mind watching Willie May uh, catching a uh, foul ball from Willie Mays, um, having my dad predict. Willie McCovey hitting a home run, predicting Tom Haller hitting a home run, things like that, that I recall. So how does that then manifest itself in the pursuit, I guess, of, of maybe the story of the stick? Are you, would you fancy yourself as an historian by trade or was it just something from childhood? And by the way, that that's not a, that's not a surprise given our explorations over the last number of years. Um, a, a lot of memories, especially folks who do books or even documentaries on particular teams or leagues or sports or whatever, it does seem to sort of uh, coalesce a lot of times, not always, around uh, sort of those formative 
childhood years, uh, especially if sports, you know, has sort of taken uh, taken grip of an adolescent and young adult mind. Um, but I'm wondering if this was more a an outlet for you creatively and uh, sort of personally, or is this a professional kind of overlap or, or something in between, perhaps? Well, as a writer, I've always tended towards history. Uh, I've written a lot of books on the history of USC football. And I'd also written a book about the 1962 uh, baseball season, which was uh, centered largely at Candlestick Park and ended Candlestick Park with the Yankees beating the Giants on a line drive by Willie McCovey. It was caught by Bobby Richardson. Uh, so I've always enjoyed the history of it. And then when, when Candlestick finally reached its end um, with the 49ers leaving after the 2013 season, actually a friend of mine suggested you should do your next book on Candlestick. And I had done so much research in the past on uh, writing about the Giants, writing about Barry Bonds, and writing a history of the 49ers that I had a lot of, I'd accumulated a lot of research um, that was at my disposal and that I was well aware of and knew, or knew, knew where to find. And so writing the book um, was a lot of fun. And it, it was just a matter of uh, coming up with uh, you know, determining which stories I had to take out because there were so many. Uh, I, you know, you could fill up, you could make it a thousand page book instead of a 250 or 300 page book. But, um, and I, oh, I wanted to give both teams, uh, both the 49ers as well as the, the Giants equal uh, star billing, uh, along with a few other events like the Beatles playing at, at Candlestick Park and a few other, I think Pope Hall appeared there in 1987, a few other major events that were, uh, uh, that, that marks the place, but mostly, obviously, it's the Giants and the 49ers, and I, I just thought that would be something that people would uh, would enjoy, and it's been, it was well received, you know, as a as nostalgia. Well, I got to think that that for obvious reasons, uh, the story essentially of the building starts with, I guess, the New York version of the Giants, right? Even prior to coming over, because part of, uh, you know, the great. Uh, uh, I guess relocation. I guess, and if you, I grew up in the New York area, and this is obviously before my time as well. But you know, with Brooklyn and and the and the Giants leaving New York all in one fell swoop. I mean, you know, talk about sort of a, leaving a giant hole in the hearts of many uh, fans in, in the New York area. But but I, my understanding is that part and parcel of uh, the Giants moving to San Francisco was this understand understanding, if not in 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 a written form at least, uh, at least on a, a on a handshake basis that a stadium uh, absolutely would be ultimately awaiting in the San Francisco region uh, to to welcome the Giants, correct? Yeah, well, there was a lot of corruption uh, involved in it. The mayor of uh, San Francisco had a deal with a, uh, a developer named Charlie Harney, I believe his name was, and to make a, to, to just simplify it, uh, Harney owned a lot of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> he just had a lot of he, he had a lot of dirt, but and he really wasn't strategic, sure strategically located dirt, though, right? Well, you have to understand um, this is before the 1989 earthquake, and uh, earthquake knowledge and seismic knowledge was not in 1957 what it is today or what it was even 20 years later. 
Uh, and I know this from uh, a personal experience because my uncle was uh, con- was a construction man, a real a real estate developer, and what he specialized in was landfill. And a lot of San Francisco is built on landfill. A lot of the uh, marina areas in Marin County, in Alameda, the East Bay, and San Francisco is and in uh, Treasure Island. The uh, the naval base, half of that is landfill. It was landfill was used to build uh, to build on the Yerba Buena Island to create Treasure Island is the other half, which is an artificial island for the World's Fair of I think it was 1939. So that was the thing in those days. Uh, you need you had a lot of dirt and you needed a place to put it. So Hardy had all this dirt and they came up with an idea for. Uh, this place out at Candlestick Point, which was, it was a naval shipyard and it was a a garbage dump. (laughs) And they just filled up the dirt into the garbage dump. Um, It would never be done. It could never be done today because of environmental concerns and, and regulations, but all of that was skirted. And somehow or other, the stadium was built and in 1989 withstood an earthquake, a six point or a 7.1 earthquake, not that far away, epicentered in Loba Prieta. Um, so uh, it was pretty well built. But yeah, that was the idea. They, uh, it was uh, San Francisco wanted to build something and they didn't, they didn't want to build it downtown. Uh, first of all, they had to deal with the dirt and they probably weren't going to be able to use the dirt if they built it downtown. And the downtown uh, business association uh, nixed the idea. They said it would take up too much parking, create too much traffic, and they didn't want a stadium near there, even though that's where the current uh, giant stadium is. And it has helped business immeasurably, but they were not as uh, farsighted at that time. Yeah, do you, do you want to describe for, for those who are not familiar with the geography of, of the Bay Area, uh, where this... Uh, section of land is is located in proximity to that of the quote unquote city uh, uh, north of it, uh, as well as within the Bay Area region, because it's almost um, having driven by it uh, multiple times uh, from, you know, SFO airport going into the city, et cetera. It's it almost looks like it's kind of tucked away uh, in some respects behind sort of a it's almost separated by a little mountain range there between that and the city itself. Yeah, it's it's not near anything. It's kind of near Brisbane. It's near an unincorporated area. Uh, there's a freeway. Um, <laughs> that's uh, it, it was a naval. It was na- it was a naval shipyard, and so a lot of black people moved in there. Uh, and so it was kind of a ghetto, uh, which was you know nobody went there. Uh, because a lot of black people moved into uh, African-Americans moved into uh, that area to work in the shipyards uh, during and after World War II. And so that was really before that, it was nothing. And as I say, it was just a uh, before it was a shipyard. I think it was just a, a garbage dump. So there was absolutely nothing there. There was no social life. There's no restaurants. There's no hotels. Uh, the airport's not far away. It is south of San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco is actually a small city geographically. So in that respect, everything's close. Uh, If you're in downtown San Francisco, you can drive to it uh, without taking a freeway and stay pretty much staying along the waterfront um, without too much traffic, 
roughly uh, 30 minutes drive. Uh, if you've ever seen um, Ma- uh, the third Dirty Harry, which was um, not Magnum Force, uh, but the third Dirty Harry uh, shows the mayor of San Francisco leaving the stadium and taking that route. And he actually goes past a uh, a drawbridge, which is now left the old dual bridge where the Giants' new ballpark is. And that's where the terrorists shoot up his car and, and capture him. Um, but you can also get there via a freeway. Um, you get off the freeway, and then it's got this weird road that is uh, one lane, uh, one way on game day going to the game and one, one lane uh, going the other way after the game. I have no idea how the people who live there uh, negotiate this because it goes through a neighborhood. <laughs> so, you know, if it's the wrong time of day, you can't go um, east or west, uh, depending upon whether it's before the game or after the game. But, of course, those days are over because the stadium isn't there anymore. Well, uh, you hinted at uh, the, 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 uh, the whole sort of uh... – finding of this uh, of this area to, to actually build in the first place um uh, you want to maybe just uh, touch on uh the controversy i guess because there was the whole deal was like it was part of like a grand jury investigation right in the later years after in the late 50s right after they had uh, yeah even uh, the, the, it the, was, the yeah the prelude to, to the giants actually or, or amidst the giants arrival yeah, there was there was an investigation. It was a big deal as far as local news was concerned. It involved Mayor George Christopher and Charlie Harney, the developer. And um, I think there were some indictments handed down and there were some guilty verdicts. Uh, but um, I don't think anyone paid a particularly steep price. But it, you know, but, I think the, I'm sorry. It's surrounded though, because it, I'm, I'm guessing it, it seemed like Harney kind of got like a, a no look deal, or or he didn't have to bid for it, or, or it was kind of like a a fait accompli. Or yeah, because like he, yeah, because he I think he had a backdoor deal with the mayor of San Francisco, uh, who was either uh, a business partner or, or a silent business partner, or getting kickbacks. However, it works, you know. Um, I don't know much. I, I I have written about it and and have read about it, but I don't I don't remember every detail of it. But yeah, it was it was a scandal at the time, that's for sure. Well, the ground was broken in in '58. Regardless of all this, it must have been a very interesting dynamic with not only the team arriving and and the city embracing the fact that Major League Baseball was, you know, finally here, but then also uh the uh the, the the notion that a new stadium was essentially underway yet also maybe distracted by this investigation and sort of the the controversy around it it must have been quite the buzz and ga- gave many of the sports writers uh, something to to really sink their teeth into for a couple of years while the thing was getting built yeah um but then when it was finally built uh then you know then now you have an accomplishment and you know it's funny uh, even though the stadium uh, a lot of people made fun of it at the time it was looked upon as a very new, very, uh, modern stadium. Uh, people raved about it. Richard Nixon said it was the best stadium in baseball. Um, other than County stadium in Milwaukee, uh, it was really the only new stadium that was built at that time. The teams in baseball were still playing at Wrigley field, the polo grounds, uh, Fenway Park, old Fenway Park, old Yankee Stadium, 
you know, Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, places like that, um, you know, Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia that were relics, we went back almost to the turn of the century. Uh, Vin Scully said it looked like a spaceship, uh, but the best description um, I think ever came from Roger Angel, who was a terrific baseball writer, and he covered the 1962 World Series for the New Yorker, and then he later turned that into a book um, uh, each season, each World Series that he had attend, or each season that he would cover would be a separate chapter in this book called uh, the, the Summer Game. And in the chapter on the Giants-Yankees World Series, or the whole 62 season was just fantastic. But his description of Candlestick was terrific because he, he described it as a festive prison yard. <laughs> and that is what it looks like, especially in those days, which is before they built out the, um, the outfield. Uh, and so the, it had these lookout towers that really looked very much like a lookout tower at San Quentin or a prison. Um, and you can see them in some of the old uh, photos. They, when, when the stadium was remodeled beginning in 71, 70, 71, 72, uh, that aspect of it was gone. But the old photos show this, uh, this sort of, almost like something you'd see at a, like a, like a, a palace, you know, like you'd have a tower at a palace or a play, a lookout for, and then it looked almost like a place where you could put guards in it, you know, to overlook the, uh, the denizens of the, of the jail. So that's how uh, Angel described it. And, um, you know, but it was festively done because there was bunting and it was a world series and it was a big crowd and everyone was excited. And uh, so it was a very good description. All right, I want to get into the reputation of the of the facility in a bit, but I also I want to stick on on, on 1960 when the um, the facility debuted because an interesting little piece of trivia here that I don't think is obvious to uh, to many fans is that the uh, the first time that uh, pro football was played in Candlestick was not the 49ers a decade plus later, but actually the AFL Oakland Raiders at the time, a couple of games in 1960 at the end of the season and in all of the 1961 season, they themselves being a relatively new franchise in a the, itself relatively new uh, American football league. So I, I find that highly interesting and somewhat ironic. Um, I, I wonder how that deal sort of came about. Cause I, I'm guessing the 49ers were still the old keys are in the city, right? Yeah. The fort, well, the, the Raiders did play at Keysar stadium. That might've been their very first, exhibition game but they did play at candlestick uh for a couple of years then they also played at a place called frank ewell field which was literally named after an undertaker it was more or less a high school stadium uh located next to what is now laney junior college next to the freeway on the way to the oakland coliseum um yeah but yeah the the raiders played there um they and then they played at Ewell Field, I think, on, through the 64 season. And then finally, Oakland Coliseum was was built, I think, in 65. They either they either played there in 65 or maybe opened there in 66. And then also there was a basketball arena. But, yeah, that was uh, the situation. Um, and then when when Al Davis got there, he, he put a nix to all that. He didn't want to have any association with San Francisco. He said, we're an Oakland team. We're going to play in Oakland. 
even if it, it is a, a ballpark named after a, an undertaker. Uh, there were there was also the East West Shrine Game, which oh, sure. was a very popular All Star football game that was played at Candlestick Park, and it involved uh, the top college players, and they would come and it was uh, they would visit these sick children at the Shriners Hospital uh, in San Francisco, which was a very popular event and and uh, kind of a tearjerker event for these for these players. They'd come in to the Shriners Hospital. It's sort of like St. Jude's today. It's uh, It was just uh, built on charity in which no kid is ever supposed to be charged a penny for um, for uh, medical uh, help. And so they would visit these kids. And, of course, the kids were, were crazy about all these fantastic football players. And then the game was very popular. It was a really well-scouted game as well. And then, obviously, the... Uh, Kizar was, uh, <laughs> I you know I've been to Kizar. It was a um, a very popular destination. And oddly enough, and this is really not about Candlestick, but Kizar in the '60s was one of the great conundrums ever because it's built in the middle of Golden Gate Park, and in the 1960s, Golden Gate Park was basically Woodstock West. So you had hippies and uh, concerts and crazy. Uh, scenes, but the football fans were not hippies. The football fans tended to be, you know, uh, plumbers and truckers. And, you know, those are the people who could have, you know, who went to the games. The, the seats were not very expensive. And so that was always a real cultural mix. As all these uh, lunch pail types would uh, descend upon um, Golden Gate Park surrounded by, you know, hippies and uh, listening to music by the doors or, Jimi Hendrix or something like that. Yeah, it's still there. Um, I know the, um, uh, the the second incarnation of the North American Soccer League had a team in San Francisco. Uh, this is, what, about 10 years ago before it itself uh, folded or went on interminable hiatus. Um, but, yeah, it's a shell of its former self for sure. But, but it, yeah, it is, it's neatly tucked into this park, so to speak. And you, it's hard to believe that it had – you know, more f- stands and, and could accommodate more fans and was, you know, literally the, the, the for, for, you know, a couple of, a number of decades, right. The, the sort of locus for pro football I- in the city. And um, I don't know, I think by modern uh, terms, you go there and you look at it, boy, it lo- does look like a park. And it's hard to believe that that footprint uh, would have supported pro football for sort of for so long. Uh, well, my dad grew up in San Francisco, told me about uh, a big high school football games like uh, St. Ignatius against Reardon or games of that nature would draw 59,000 fans for high school games in the like the 20s and early 30s. And also some of the best college football in the country was played there. The University of San Francisco was a college football power, as was St. Mary's. And so was Santa Clara. And those teams all played there in the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. And then when the when the 49ers arrived, that really destroyed the smaller college football teams. So Cal and Stanford were able to survive. USF and St. Mary's and Santa Clara were, you know, drifted slowly by the way to the wayside um, as college football programs. Uh, but it was a, it was a very functioning stadium, and so you know the fact that it did, it was obvious that San Francisco was filled with rabid sports fans. 
they were very uh, crazy about the the seals. They filled up Kizar for for high school and college games. Um, there were big boxing matches, and so there was no doubt uh, that both Los Angeles and San Francisco could support uh, major league sports. And when they came out here it changed the entire West coast and it, it changed the whole dynamic of California. And it became, it became the place. Um, it, the cultural uh, ethos of the country really shifted from New York to California in the sixties and seventies. And a lot of it was because of the building of these stadiums and the popularity of these teams. Absolutely. And the, and the continuation of, of essentially what was a rivalry uh, in New York, just uh, now more cemented as a, sort of a, a statewide rivalry. Well, let's talk about baseball's early years there because it it certainly, I'm trying to put this uh, mildly, uh, it did gain some reputation, didn't it, uh, for various uh, types of playing conditions and, and whatnot, some of it geographically uh, 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 related, some of it maybe just by happenstance or, or luck or, or, or uh, maybe you want to get into a little bit of sort of how the players uh, and uh, the fans and everybody basically adjusted to what, what was the first number of years uh, of baseball play there? Um, It certainly had its idiosyncrasies. Well, first time Willie Mays took batting practice, he hit one into the teeth of the wind, uh, a ball that would normally be a home run in any other ballpark. And it just blew right back onto the field. And he just took one look at the, you know, the manager of the team and Chubb Feeney and, and the other people and said, I, this, I, I can't hit here. Um, it's very first year, 1960 or maybe it was 61. Uh, they had an all-star game and this was a very strange game in which the, the temperatures were over hundred degrees at the beginning of the game, which is very, very rare. <laughs> I have been to a game where, where there were temper a game at candlestick, in which there were temperatures like that, uh, but it was—I've—it's only happened once. It was when they had all when they had AstroTurf, and Bobby Bonds, not Barry, Bobby Bonds was playing right field, and he was—he had to hop around because it was so hot under his um, <clears throat> under his cleats. But getting back to '61, the, the All-Star Game started with 100-degree weather and uh, completely changed during the course of nine innings to the point where by the ninth inning, there was basically uh, a tornado coming through and it was maybe 55 degrees with, with swirling fog that looked like something out of the old Testament. And a pitcher for the giants um, was on the mound and was supposedly blown off the mound. He wasn't actually blown off the mound. He basically balked, um, but the wind caused him to uh, to change his motion, and he was called for Bach, and they, they said later that he, he had been blown off the mound. The Yankee players who were there, uh, they didn't like it. And, of course, that, that all those comments got back in the New York press, uh, the comments of Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Roger Maris, that this is terrible ballpark, this is not a major league ballpark. That got into the mainstream of, of New York uh, sports writing, and so – a lot of people felt that it was not a big league stadium. Um, from my standpoint, I played college baseball at the University of Nevada, and it's a high altitude place. And the first month or two of the season, it's very cold. 
and um, teams would come there, up there and play us and complain about the cold weather and, and, and not like the cold weather. And, but we got used to it. And that's what happened with the Giants. You get used to it. If it's your team, if it's your home stadium, you turn it into an advantage. And in, what, what Mays did, um, incredibly, he changed his uh, batting stroke. And what, at least when he was at home, he would uh, hit the ball over the right center field fence. He'd, and that was, that was actually an advantage to a left-handed hitter or a, a guy hitting liners to that part of the park because the wind would blow, especially during day games, or the Giants played a lot of day games. They didn't play night games on Saturdays, for instance. They played day games on Wednesdays, maybe even another day of the week. So, you know, he's hitting these balls. And he Mays actually improved his home run totals uh, at Candlestick Park. Um, a lot of people have said that he would have hit more home runs uh, at another ballpark, but I, I don't think so. I don't think his, his record shows that. He had a lot of big home run years um, because he – he adjusted his swing. So, you know, they had a lot of power in that ballpark. They had Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda. They had Bill White at the beginning. I think Bill White was gone by the time they moved to Candlestick, but there was a lot of power on that club. And, and that you're, you're essentially referencing the wind that would be coming off of, uh, of the bay that would, I guess, be pushing generally things towards left field uh, mostly? Well, no. Actually, it, was, it pushed things more towards right center. Got it. Um, you know, whether it was coming off the bay or not, uh, that's not wasn't necessarily coming off the bay. There was a there was a sort of um, cliff that w- the stadium was built onto, and I think a lot of the weird uh, weather variations were because things might flow in off the bay and hit this sort of not a mountain but this 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 large hill that, that was very rocky and the, the, the fog would hit it and the wind would hit it and almost reverberate back. You'd almost have a, um, a wind shear going the opposite direction. Like a collision. And of, then, of, of, yeah, uh, and, it, yeah. And, and it caused whirlwinds and you would see little dust devils, something like you would see if you were in the Midwest. Uh, papers flying about, uh, hot dog wrappers, newspapers. Uh, it was, it was just a weird place. The fog, of course, was extremely strange. You know, and people would, you get tourists coming into San Francisco, and oh, I'm going to go to a Giants game, and they're, you know, it's maybe they're in um, the Marina District or some other part of the city, and it's uh, 70 degrees and very pleasant, and you're in shorts and uh, uh, short sleeve shirt and you go to the ballpark and that fog comes in and you know it's brutal it's like London and so it can be like that in the uh, in the summertime as Mark Twain said the coldest winter he ever spent was the summer in San Francisco well you're hinting at it's cold right uh, and I, I know you're not a meteorologist by trade but what was the fog the reason why it gained a reputation for being so cold and and my understanding is that because of it being perceived as such a cold venue, that that was one of the driving reasons why, I think, uh, they played more day games, almost a, a akin to the amount that they played at Wrigley Field for different reasons, um, because it was warmer yeah. during the day, I'm guessing. I'm not really sure it was warmer during the day, to be honest. Um, 
it's it's a very San Francisco is a very strange city, and its climate is is very odd, and it 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 depends upon the time of year. Uh, April is different from May. Then June, you get this a marine layer that comes in in June. The nicest time of the year is late August, September, October. That's actually very nice weather um, into into November, believe it or not. Um, but June and July can be can be cold. So you have got a combination of fog and um, and and wind and. Also, the way the stadium was built, it, had, it was just built out of concrete, and you touch the concrete, and the concrete was cold. If you leaned up against it, it was cold. Um, it didn't have a warm feel to it. It wasn't built to be a warm stadium, and it, and it was built in a way that um, wind would it, – it wasn't entirely uh, enclosed. And so the wind would blow through these these shafts, and you would be walking around the concourses. You'd be walking to the restroom, and the wind would be blowing through. And you might feel the wind there, and you might, but that might not be on the field. You might be. It might be a completely different experience in the third deck or the second deck. Actually, I think they only had two decks than it was down on the field. Um, the bleachers could be completely different than sitting behind uh, first base. <laughs> it was. Uh, you know, the experience, the experience of the left fielder was different from the catcher of the first base. That's what I was going to ask. It sounds like on the field too, it would be somewhat micro differences going on. Yeah. I mean, it really was, it was, um, it's just the way it between the way it was built, its actual physical location. And then the oddities of the geography around it, uh, in particular, that large, um, crevice of a hill, that was right next to it. You know, that, that blocked out a lot of sun. Uh, it created a lot of, uh, wind, wind, wind shafts and wind shears. It was just a weird place. But, but this, but this was, frankly, this was known kind of, uh, activity and behavior before the stadium was even built. Right. I mean, this wasn't because of the stadium. Well, yes and no. Um, Horace Stoneham, uh, the, the people, when you talked about uh, Charlie Harney and Mayor Christopher and how they got the deal, you know, to, to build the stadium where it was, the first thing is Harney looked at the polo grounds, and it, which had no parking, and he looked at County Stadium in Milwaukee, which was really drawing well uh, because they had a lot of parking and it was crisscrossed by freeways. So he said, I want the stadium to be near a freeway and I want lots of parking. And, and in San Francisco, that... Uh, limited where it could be. Uh, and so they, they came up with the location and what happened was they took him out there at around 10 o'clock in the morning and it could be nice at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the wind is not up yet. Uh, the sun can be out and uh, he got one of those days and you know, the sun was coming down and, uh, it was, and, but everyone was sort of hurrying him away, you know, well, it's uh, time to go, you know, and um, he was a guy I liked to get to his cocktails, you know, by five o'clock. So he was, you know, he, he, he saw it during the middle of the day and then he left. And apparently, according to lore, you know, soon after he left, the wind came in and just started blowing everything around. And I think Chubb Feeney, who was his number two guy, 
he showed up a couple of days later and was there with when the wind was blowing in and Stoneham hadn't seen that, but Stoneham had decided on that first meeting, this is where the stadium was. And then Feeney was like, wait, is this the way it is all the time? And, uh, and that's, that's what he ran into. And so that was the, the circumstances the team generally played under. Well, to be, a fly on the wall at the architect's office and and the construction company's uh, 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 you know hallways, uh, knowing that right and and it, you know and and that on top of literally and figuratively what it was, uh, dirt and or a you know a former decaying uh, base and or dump. As a matter of fact, the dump was was one of the shall we say not so nice nicknames that, that the the facility was given over the years. I mean, I'm sure there were some other ones that are a little less less harsh, but I, it just seems like th- there were people who kind of, I, th- I guess pe- it seems, seems like people in charge kind of knew that this was not the most ideal location yet. It, it had to be. Yeah. I mean, obviously the best location would have been where the current um, 18, I guess it's AT&T park is now where the giants play. That's a fantastic location. Does not have at all, does not have the same weather conditions there at all as uh as candlestick point. Um, but they were not uh, forward thinking enough to do it at that time, mainly, as I said, because the business owners association was very powerful and voted against, uh, uh, against doing it. Um, they certainly had the freeways. They, they even had, there was another freeway, the Embarcadero freeway, uh, which existed at that time. Uh, so there was plenty of freeways to, get people to that location that Embarcadero freeway was destroyed in the, after the 1989 earthquake. So um, the way you get to the current giant stadium, mainly from uh, Marin County or from the North part of San Francisco is all along um, the, uh, this, this beautiful road that is right along the, the, the Bay. So it's all very scenic. You don't get any of that with, with candlestick you don't ha- get that sense of san francisco scenery or beauty it's the, even you can see the bay but it's a part of the bay that's very wide and the other side is is, is a long ways off it almost looks like looking at um, france from england you know it's not like uh where the current giant ballpark is which is almost underneath the bay bridge and you've got a beautiful view of the East Bay Hills and Oakland, but you don't see any of that from San Francisco. You're looking, you're just looking at uh, the, at a, at a, a large body, body of water. There's a bridge, the San Mateo bridge, you can kind of see. And on the other side, not much, you know, Fremont, <laughs> you know, there aren't any big buildings or anything really that, that stands out. It's not like a lot of beautiful lights or anything like that at night that you have. Um, from their current location. Um, so it was, uh, it just was, but I don't know outside of, I mean, you could, there are several possibilities. You could have possibly, you would have had to go through a lot of political hoops. They could have maybe done something at the Presidio. Uh, of course, that was a working army base at that time, and it was still the Cold War. So I guess that was, that was out. You could have possibly tried to do something at Treasure Island, which is, um, but of course that was the naval base. And so he had the same issue. 
I don't really know where you would have built it. Um, maybe out of the Sunset District, they would or 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 uh, <laughs> there never would have been the political uh, will to do it. But dig up a whole bunch of Golden Gate Park and and build it out there, you know. But uh, nobody wanted to do that, so they built it where they did. Yeah, but it sounds like the team and the players, uh, you know, adjusted and, and tried to make it their own, so to speak, right? With all the idiosyncrasies and the, and the cold and the wind and all that kind of stuff. I sadly, though, it did not translate at least, uh, geez, at least until maybe near the end of its life with the Giants uh, uh, into uh, any sustaining championship uh uh defensible uh, uh advantages right uh save for uh you know world series uh, appearance in in 61 early on excuse me 62 early on um and um you know in 89 in the world series right which is significant for some other reasons too but um i i guess home field advantage i guess is is obviously something that you you probably want to embrace with this particular park but I don't know. It didn't. Did it really seem to sort of convey any uh, as the year sort of went on? I mean, maybe you know. I'm not sure. Uh, you tell me. Well, there's no question that the team had a tremendous amount of talent. That was not the problem for sure. Um, they they were better in San Francisco. They were better in San Francisco than they had been in New York, and the rivalry with the Dodgers was better than it was in New York. Um, it was more intense. It was more. Um, it was a more heated rivalry of teams contending for the pennant year in and year out than it had been in New York. The New York years were outside of several very uh, memorable seasons, particularly 1951. Usually it was either the Giants kind of dominating under John McGraw and then the Dodgers kind of dominating under, you know, Leo DeRocher or maybe Charlie Dressen. But in, in the, the sixties and early seventies, um, it was a very even rivalry and there were really see there were really good teams in the National League. The National League was the superior league to the American League at that time. It had embraced um the African American players, there was more speed, uh there was more dynamism in the game, uh, and there were some real dynasties. So you might have a great Giants team, and we're talking, I mean, Hall of Famers. You could have Gaylord Perry, Juan Marshall, uh, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Willie Mays, uh, later Bobby Bonds, all on the same team. That would seemingly translate to a championship. But you had Dodger teams that had Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Tommy Davis, Frank Howard, equally uh, powerful. You had great Cincinnati Reds teams, great St. Louis Cardinals teams, great uh, Braves teams. Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates with Roberto Clemente were very powerful during that era. Um, eventually, the New York Mets and the Chicago Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds uh, became dynasties. So there was always, it was, it was you could mirror the Giants' uh, failure to win uh, championships with Juan Marshall's so-called failure to win Cy Young Awards. Marshall was as good a pitcher as there was in baseball, but never won a Cy Young Award because every year um, Dean Chance or Sandy Koufax or Tom Seaver or somebody uh, had a supposedly better season. So outside of 62, somebody else always managed to 
have a better season. What somebody else always managed to be better in the last week of the season is really what it came down to. And it was like that even before Candlestick. It was like that uh, in 59 when they had the pennant basically won and were beaten three straight at home by the Dodgers at Seal Stadium. And uh, outside of 62, uh, it was the Dodgers or somebody else or the Cardinals or some other team that uh, came through in September and the Giants would fold. Oddly enough, when the weather was best at Candlestick. All right, what's this? Lucy Nicotine. Yes. Well, hey, look, folks, we're all adults here, and some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. And Lucy Nicotine is a company that was created to help nicotine users find a cleaner option and feel better about the ways they consume nicotine. Now, look, I'm not a smoker. I've not been a chewing uh, tobacco kind of guy. We all know that uh, nicotine is absolutely endemic uh, to those... uh, Uh, activities. Uh, And uh, you look, if you're looking to evolve, say, from the smoking habit, uh, but recognize that nicotine is is part of the mix, well, perhaps Lucy Nicotine uh, is a a helpful way uh, to evolve from uh, those habits. Their latest product is called Slim Nicotine Pouches, uh, which contain pure synthetic nicotine and, and provide the same satisfaction that nicotine users expect without any tobacco at all. Uh, Lucy Slim Pouches use the newest technology for synthesizing, he says, pure nicotine in the lab. None of the tobacco and all of the nicotine satisfaction. Uh, They come in three strengths, four, eight, and 12 milligrams, and three exclusive and uh, inviting flavors, spearmint, mango, and cool cider. So don't compromise when you're choosing your nicotine products. Go with the newest tobacco-free options from Lucy Nicotine. And my listeners can go to lucy.co and use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 20% off your order of Lucy Slim Pouches or any other of the Lucy Nicotine products. That's lucy.co and use promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Now, I got to use this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains non-tobacco nicotine and nicotine is an addictive chemical. Thank you, Lucy Nicotine, for your sponsorship of the show. And now back to our conversation. How did the fans uh, react? I mean, was it, did they embrace the park? Were they, uh, did they fill up the place? Uh, uh, obviously, it was a new experience for them. I'm sure in the early part of uh, of those uh, those years, right? Just the, this the mania of having uh, big league baseball in town was enough of a driver, but. Uh, were fa- were fans welcome welcoming to the stadium as well, or did they have their issues and or I, I guess how was attendance? How was it sort of um, how were they supported because of all attendance was outstanding uh, for the first seven years uh, up through about sixty six uh, w- during the years in which Willie Mays was at his peak and McCovey was was at his peak. Um, it started to go down a little bit in 67. What really killed attendance at Candlestick was the uh, arrival of the Oakland Athletics. And the Athletics uh, took away a lot of thunder from the Giants. Um, they, it's not that they drew really well, but, you know, 
the Giants went from drawing what was a you know a million four, a million six, which was good attendance in those days. Nowadays, not so much, but in those days, good attendance. Uh, the Dodgers were drawing two million, two and a half million per year. They were just killing it down there, and so it was it, it was big. And when the, I mean the attendance was when the Dodgers came to town, you had three sellouts. Uh, maybe when Bob Gibson was pitching, it was a nice Saturday or Sunday afternoon. You'd have a you know you'd get thirty thousand, thirty five thousand people. You know that made up for some cold weekday games against the uh you know the the pirates or somebody where you'd only have five or six thousand people but as i say when the a's arrived it really uh, took attendance away and then of course the a's became a dynasty and the giants faltered badly in the early 1970s and a lot of uh the mojo of sports in the bay area shifted to the east bay the east bay became the place where champions lived. You had champion A's teams, champion Raiders teams, even champion Warriors teams. In San Francisco, you had a bad Giants team. So um, that was the dynamic uh, until the late 1970s. Very interesting. Well, before we get into the in the seventies, because this I want to then obviously use that as the as a, the gateway, so to speak, for uh, the 49ers. Um, there was this little uh, a blip of another team. I, I don't know if you get into it in the book, but uh, this was sort of the, uh, and we've dealt a lot about this in other, other episodes and stuff, a flirtation with professional soccer at the time. Um, I, I, were you, are you aware of a team called the, I guess it was called the San Francisco, but it was also called the Golden Gate Gales in 1967 that apparently domiciled in Candlestick Park as well. I know Kizar was also a place where soccer was played um, but, uh, any remembrance there, or did you sort of come ac- across any of that? Or was that just literally a blip that was kind of not seen? Yeah, they, I, I have heard of them. They didn't draw well. I think people felt that there was a lot, there were a lot of immigrants and foreigners who, who resided in San Francisco and they would, they would take to a sport like soccer, but some of these sports like ice hockey, uh, they had ice hockey over in, uh, in Oakland that didn't take at all. Um, you had an ABA team that played in San Francisco that didn't, they didn't draw and they had, they had yes. Will Chamberlain and Rick Berry. I mean, yeah, we, we had, <laughs> we, we had Pat Boone on this, uh, this show a couple of years ago. He was the owner of that, the Oakland Oaks. And, That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A challenge for sure. Yeah. It was a challenge and it wasn't, it wasn't for lack of talent. Um, you know, it's San Francisco, San Francisco is a small city. Uh, is not as big as San Jose. It's small um, in terms of um, geography. It is not Los Angeles, which is a you know a huge county and a huge city. Um, there are a lot of people who live in the Bay Area. Um, there's like I don't know what it was in the '60s. Now it's probably eight or nine million people live in the Bay Area. So what? What the challenge has always been to consolidate. The, the, the media market, shall we say, and say and call the Giants or the 49ers or whoever the team is to be your team in the San Francisco Bay Area and make it the team of people in Santa Rosa and Livermore and San Jose. And for instance, San Jose. A regional approach, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that that only happens over time uh, with uh, television and the building of freeways or the building of, 
more public transportation, making it easier for people to get places, uh, better cars, better um, uh, gas mileage, so to speak. You know, like San Jose, for instance, was uh, that was the first place that the Giants centered on and said, okay, this is our territory. It's quite a distance from Candlestick. It's probably, I don't know, 40 miles south of Candlestick Park, um, roughly an hour's drive with, with traffic through the Silicon Valley. But it was always, it was always marketed as uh, the Giants' territory, and the, they had uh, a minor league team there. There were some players from San Jose that made good with the Giants. And when Oakland, for instance, the Oakland A's wanted to move there, they were unable to do it because it was considered the Giants' territorial rights. And, you know, what has happened over the years, and it took a long time, was the Giants have been able to sort of capture the vibe of the entire San Francisco Bay Area, which is a very large area, you know, running 70 miles from San Jose to to Santa Rosa. And they've They've effectively been able to do that, but it took a long time to do it. Well, let, let's let's get into the, the '70s because um, I, the uh, 49ers uh, came into into the scene, and and I you know tremendously changed the landscape of what this park was all about because until 19 what 71, this was a baseball only park, right? And um, maybe you could give us a, a little bit of a, a background as to sort of the how and why of the 49ers setting their sights from uh, Kizar and, and going to Candlestick Park, I, I get the sense that uh, their arrival was also uh, part of the reason or partially the reason for uh, further enclosing the park, uh, which I guess some people also thought would be perhaps a fix to some of the uh, chilly and windy conditions uh, heretofore. Yeah, that's uh, the Giants. I mean, the 49ers wanted to get out of Keysar because it was a crumbling high, you know, glorified high school stadium. It was also surrounded by bars, too. And, and it, it really had a reputation for being for, uh, for, for drunken fans. Violent. That, that almost sounds fans. like, oh, I was going to say that almost sounds kind of like fun. But OK, I could see that. I could see the dark side of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was not a family friendly place. It wasn't a, a good place to bring kids. For instance, Kizar, uh, the way the the benches were built, you could have a bottle of whiskey or a bottle of beer and place it underneath your um, your seat, and it would just roll all the way down, kicking off the heels of people splintering and breaking with broken glass all the way to the bottom. And then at the very bottom, you'd be sitting there at the, at the very bottom with nothing but broken glass at your feet (laughs) because that's where all the glass would end up. So it was, it just had a lot of problems. So uh, they did decide that they were going to move to candlestick and they enclosed it. And that took a lot of the, Oh, a lot of the charisma of the place out of the stadium, you, you did have a little bit of a view. I mean, you, you, you looked at a, a giant crane that was for shipbuilding. It kind of looked like something out of star Wars or, you know, um, but it was at least something to look at. Um, and you had these, these bleachers that were very windy, but uh, it's kind of a fun place to sit. And you got a lot of home run balls were hit out there. It was a 
great place to be during the batting practice. When they enclosed it, all that vibe was gone, and they built these, uh, you know, these these big overhangs and seats that were just ridiculously high and far from the action and and not making it better for football or for baseball. Well, Steve, was that because of the 49ers? Was that, was that sort of done in concert? No, that was, abso- no, that was absolutely because of the 49ers. Okay. Yeah, and was, were they dictating I, I, that, so to speak, or was that kind of accommodations? Or, like, how does that sort of get get made? I mean, was it a capacity issue? I, 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 I think the idea was, uh, you know, in those days you had multi, multi-sport parks, and that was the thing at that time. Um the Dodger Stadium was, they were smart enough to never let that happen. But St. Louis, Houston, San Francisco, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, you name it, um, Chase Stadium, these parks were built for two sports and they accommodated neither one very well. And Candlestick Park did not accommodate both sports well. Um, I did not necessarily it, it I think it probably made it a little better for a right-handed home run hitter. By the time this was done, Willie Mays was at the very end of his career, so he never benefited from it. McCovey probably lost a little bit of power because some of that wind that went to right field. But you still had the swirling, you still had the fog. Um you know, and then they didn't improve the place much when they put in AstroTurf. Uh, the, the 49ers, there were a lot of seats that were not even available for baseball that were sort of tucked or down, tucked in behind right field. You could see them, but you couldn't sit in them. And they were brought out, you know, to extend down to the field, uh, for football games. And it was all really ugly. And there were a lot of large stanchions that uh, if you were sitting behind it, you really couldn't see much of the action. <laughs> so it was not a very good ballpark for the 49ers, and they weren't very good. They Well, they were good for, for two years. They were a playoff team for two years, and then they completely fell uh, off the rails uh, when John Brody became old and retired and, and didn't do anything. But then along comes Joe Montana and, and they, they just uh, became an absolute dynasty. And the, that stadium just was rocking, you know, it was absolutely packed and it became the place in pro football. Uh, not because it was a great stadium for the game, but because you had the best team and that was just the way it was, you know, the performance on the field is always going to be the most important thing. Yeah, and um, I, I remember vividly uh, watching, obviously, lots of championship games and playoff games and, and whatnot, or, or the occasional 49ers games that might be broadcast in the uh, the New York area where I grew up, maybe playing the Giants or something. And, and you would notice, clearly, there were lots of seemingly empty seats, but those were because they were terrible sight lines and or, you know, uh, designed, I guess, either for baseball or originally for baseball. And um, it did, I wouldn't call it slapdash, but it did look like it was... An accommodation that didn't really accommodate. It was sla- either it, side. it was slapdash. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. I, but yeah, with, that was noticeable, I guess, to the, the, to, to the discerning eye. Um, but I guess to your point, right? It was almost sort of a retrofit of a multi-purpose thing. Uh, years after, you know, trying to make the best of what was there prior. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. It didn't. It never had 
the people in San Francisco never had the foresight of the planners down in Los Angeles uh, in the way they built their stadiums, whether, whether it was, whether it was Dodger stadium, the Rose bowl or the Coliseum, all great stadiums um, that served their purposes very, very well and still do. Every one of them still does um, in terms of parking location uh, availability. And then, I mean, I was at Dodger stadium on Wednesday night. It's, it's, it, it's still magnificent, an absolutely magnificent ballpark. Um, I'm not, you know, but uh, the Giants changed everything when they finally built AT&T Park, and that really changed the whole dynamic, not just of sports, but of the culture of the two cities. Uh, San Francisco was, I described it as a city with a inferiority, inferiority complex max, uh, masked by a superiority complex. <laughs> well, the, and, and, and yeah. candlestick for so many years, I guess, probably didn't help that image per se. Right. Um, that was, it was one of the biggest reasons they did. They had that weird perception and, and that the writers in San Francisco used to write weird things like, we don't really want to win. A, we don't really want to wor- win a world series. Um, you know, they used to, there were writers and there were, there were, poli- there were people with political views that yeah, America should lose a war every so often, you know, be more fair, you know. And there was one writer who actually wrote, wrote 1969, um, I, I've decided I'm now rooting for the North Vietnamese communists. And that was San Francisco. Um, and you had another writer who said, I, ultimate victory is too jarring, you know. But in Los Angeles and New York, um, ultimate victory was, was what was expected. And they, you know, many world championships were won in various sports, uh, but not in San Francisco until, uh, 2010, <laughs> you know, that was when the world series was finally won by a team in San Francisco. Nobody had won. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Until 1981. Uh, that's when, when it all st- started to change with the 49ers. And um, it changed the whole dynamic with uh, Los Angeles. It suddenly uh, teams in Northern California became better than teams in Southern California. Before that, everybody in the Southland dominated from the college to the pros. All right. A couple more things. Before. I, I don't want, you know, we could go on for hours on this because I'm fascinated by it all. But this, let me talk about the 70s for a second, right? So uh, the, obviously the... Um, uh, the 49ers arrive in the in, in 71, but the 70s was also dominated. You hinted at it a minute ago uh, with a, a change of turf to to artificial from grass. Um, was that solely a 49ers kind of issue, or were the Giants sort of uh, in cahoots for that too? And maybe I think that was I think I think that was a Giants thing. Um, the why uh, there is no good reason. There is absolutely no good reason. First of all. Uh, San Francisco has had fewer rainouts than any major league city um, in all of baseball. It rains less there. You would think it would be Los Angeles, but it's San Francisco has had fewer rainouts. Maybe, you know, maybe it's just the, I think in the winter time it rains, but in the, in the spring, summer and fall, it doesn't rain there. Um, so that certainly there wasn't, wasn't a, a problem with the field, or drainage or anything like that. It was just, 
AstroTurf in those days was the thing, you know, uh, the Houston uh, Astrodome had been built and that had AstroTurf and people thought our AstroTurf is, is the wave of the future. And, um, you know, the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Rams and a lot of those teams, they resisted uh, doing stuff like that. But a lot of teams played on AstroTurf and it was horrible. You had the Miami Dolphins played on AstroTurf, you know, how hot it gets in Miami and you'd be, players had, had turf burns just from the AstroTurf burning their skin when they fell on it. And so there was absolutely no good reason to build it. None. There, I can't think of anything. So it only lasted a few years and they went back to the grass. I don't, I don't think, for instance, Joe Montana ever played on AstroTurf. I think it was gone by the time he, yeah, I think it was like, I think it was 70 through 78, but I, I, um, I guess too that also had a maybe was trying to sort of fall into lockstep with what the uh, multi-purpose stadium dynamic was sort of playing out. Yeah, exactly. Right? So yeah, keep quicker turnout. Well, okay. Maybe. The one, the one, the one aspect of the multi-purpose uh, uh, stadium was if you had one, you get to the fall, especially if you're in the playoffs or the World Series. In '71, for instance, the uh, 71 World Series was played at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, and the Colts had played uh, a football game in the rain, and the World Series between the Pirates and the Orioles was played on a terrible, muddy field in which there was no grass left. Everything had been clomped up by the football game. So I think that was probably what was going through people's minds, that when you get to the fall and the football team is playing there on a Sunday and the baseball team is playing there that week, um, if you have grass, it's going to get all chomped up. So that was probably what the, the idea was. But, um, you know, any good groundskeeper can keep a, a field in good shape. Well, talk talk about the 80s then, because it does seem like the dynamic of the 49ers truly changed the trajectory of, of the park. And I obviously want to get to the end of the decade where the Giants – made their once every decade sort of uh, punch through to, uh, to, to the, to the world series. But I mean, you know, the, the, the I think a lot of people um, remember iconically, not only the years with, with Montana and, and, and but Jerry Rice and, and the, the, the catch quote unquote, uh, uh, which was, um, you know, a, a legendary uh, a touchdown play uh, uh, during the playoffs. I, I, I wonder um, in many respects, how uh, people in in the area might have just perceived this park because it, it, even though it wasn't accommodating very well for either team in its sort of multi-purpose fashion, um, there's no there's no mistake. I mean, it, it felt like to the outside observer that 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 outside of, of the Bay Area, not you know, not maybe following the either of the two teams, that it that the 49ers and Candlestick became literally more synonymous. I, I almost in some respects feel like the giants almost kind of became maybe like the secondary tenant uh, during those years, not only because of, of their losing ways relative to, to the 49ers, but it almost felt like the 49ers kind of just moved in and took over. Yeah, yeah they did. No, you're, you're completely right. And the entire culture changed during this period of time. Um, San Francisco as a city changed. Um, it was, this was, during the period when Silicon Valley was rising and you had a tremendous amount of growth in an area called Soma, which is South of mission. And, um, a lot of money came into San Francisco and 
it was San Francisco prior to that was a Dirty Harry movie. You know, if you looked at all Dirty Harry movies, it was a bunch of weirdos on the streets and stranger street urchins that uh, Clint Eastwood had to deal with uh, while he was going after terrorists and maniacs and shooting the place up, you know. And a lot of those areas where those scenes were filmed suddenly were being developed into nice places. And so the entire culture of San Francisco became far more, it lost the inferiority complex. And um, the San Francisco teams, namely the 49ers, suddenly were beating the Los Angeles teams. And that was, that had never happened before. And now all of us, and USC and UCLA were not as good. Uh, they weren't dominating uh, Cal and Stanford as they had for decades before that. So the 49ers, whether you want to, whether that was just a coincidence, it just all fell into place and created an entire dynamic in which the city uh, really, you know, found its footing, found its confidence. And it was no more, no better embodied than Joe Montana and Dwight Clark and Jerry Rice and Bill Walsh and the 49ers, because they were just an unbelievable. That was one of the greatest dynasties up until the Patriots had to be the greatest dynasty in the history of pro football. And, and would you would you send would you say say that the um, the conditions of the field there? Uh, we talked about it with the Giants. That did it help or hurt or hinder? I mean. Was this a feared place to go, not only because of the, the quality of the talent, but just because of the, the playing conditions? I mean, given the more circular winds and, and all that kind of stuff, or did it sort of affect everybody just equally, not just the 49ers? Well, remember, the, uh, as I said, the weather in San Francisco gets way better um, uh, right around this time of year, maybe a week from now, from Labor Day on. From Labor Day until Thanksgiving, uh, you have the best weather in in, in uh, the Bay Area is in September, October, and November. Around mid-November, it starts getting cold. And you'll, you'll, you might get some rain. You might get some cold days. But you have, you have these magnificent days. Um, so football is not like baseball. It's not in these foggy conditions. It's often played under magnificent 70, 80-degree weather, uh, warm sun, uh, that's the way it is in September and October. It's just perfect for football. And it's perfect for the World Series. It's just not so great in the July. That's interesting and and fortuitous, right? Um, wow. Okay. Well, uh, so many things to, ra- uh, to to wrap our heads around. All right. So let's. I don't want to uh, short shrift on on the uh, another sort of uh, impactful. And I certainly don't want to skate over the 49ers uh, championship seasons, right? By any means, but. Um, I, I think it's very difficult to not talk about uh, October 17th, 1989 in the history of the park, because uh, that was a, a major event of, of significant proportions. Um, and ironically, uh, the Giants having finally gotten back to the big show, the World Series, and, and interestingly, against their Cross Bay rivals, the Oakland A's, um, but the earthquake, right, uh, nationally televised, uh, the game literally gets shaken off the air. Um, maybe a little background on that, because I also get the sense uh, from my uh, reading of this that there was, uh, prior to the earthquake hitting, uh, a, a sense that um, the the park needed to be shored up and, and sort of brought up to spec uh, when it came to handling uh, a potential earthquake, and, and strangely, it happened. I think right, relatively soon thereafter. 
Well, they knew a lot more about seismic conditions by 89 than they did in 1960. Um, you know, there was a lot of science going on. I was at that game. I was sitting in the second deck and it, you know, it was rocking and rolling. And at first people did not think it was an earthquake. Um, it luckily the, the stadium did not get the worst of the earthquake, even though it, it did make part of the stadium crumble and it did cause the world series to be delayed. The worst, uh, the, the worst part of the quake was uh, took place at the Bay bridge, which the bridge didn't fall down, but the upper deck, a section of the upper deck did fall down. There were people killed. There was a, um, a pancaking of the um, freeway in Oakland that killed a lot of people. It was a terrible event. And oddly enough, Candlestick, even though it was built on landfill, survived quite nicely, whereas the Marina District, which is a very wealthy area known as North Beach, where Joe DiMaggio grew up and lived at that time, um, that area uh, suffered badly because it was all built on landfill and um, beautiful homes, beautiful old Victorian homes were, were destroyed or had fires. But the candlestick held up quite nicely. Um, oddly, it was 89, what you could almost say was like the epicenter of great, great professional sports in the Bay Area. You have the, um, the, the 49ers had maybe their greatest team. The Giants had a great team, and the A's had maybe their greatest team all in the same all at the same time. But it was weird. It was just it was almost like it was almost like saying, "Ah, San Francisco, you're not quite ready for uh, for showtime." Oddly enough, I've written I wrote a book about by about Jim Murray, a great writer for the L.A. Times, and he used to write about Los Angeles. And, and Los Angeles, he wrote, was it was built for big events. You know, uh, it could rain for five days, but uh, the Rose Bowl would come around and it would be 80 degrees and perfect. And the weather was always perfect for the Super Bowl or the Rose Bowl or the World Series or uh, the the Olympics. Everything was, it just, it was as if Mother Nature was, was built into the plan. Not so in San Francisco. Uh, always something was um, was ruining the party. For instance, in 62, they played. They had the World Series there, and I say that's the, usually the best best weather. They had a Pacific storm that absolutely blew everything out for like five or six days. So that that uh, World Series was postponed for five or six days. Um, and then, of course, in '89, you get this earthquake. So it was always something in San Francisco. It was like there was some sort of a <laughs> some sort of bad omen was always hanging over the place. What did it feel like? Well, like I say, at first I just thought it was um, the fans stomping their feet and people uh, were cheering when that first happened because they just thought the stadium was rocking because the fans were so into it. And then they started noticing <laughs> that chunks of the upper deck were crumbling and that's not good. And, uh, and then uh, everyone had transistor radios. And what happened was... Um, you started hearing people saying the Bay Bridge collapsed. And the Bay Bridge is a huge uh, multi-lever uh, bridge that connects Oakland to San Francisco with an island in between. With And at rush hour at 5 o'clock, it's just filled with 
with uh, travelers and it and underneath it is is the BART, which is the the train that runs under under the the bay and so uh you have people saying the bay bridge collapsed and you have this image in your mind of cars falling off like like a like a, a horror movie and who knows what's going on underneath the bay with the with the uh, the train you know i mean if that thing is falling apart and everyone's being flooded out. And so these images were quickly displacing the idea that was just, uh, you know, a fun, a fun event, just sort of breaking up the monotony before the game. And then of course, then the, you know, the, the, everything went off the television and the electricity went out and you realize the game was not going to be played. And then I realized I don't know how I'm going to get home because I was staying in Walnut Creek. I had taken BART to get to the game. I didn't have, a, my friend and I did not have a car. Uh, we walked to some homes not far. Oh, actually, I think a bus took us to uh, the, the area where, uh, where the, the last train station at Daly City had dropped us off. And that's where the bus took us. And so we, there was, it didn't do us any good to be there, but we walked to a, to a house nearby and there were two young women living there. And we went in and we asked, can we, you know, they had a TV going, they had electricity. And we said, can we make a few phone calls and at least sort of gather our, you know, gather our, an idea of what we're going to do. And they were very helpful. I was able to call my parents and they were okay. And, uh, we were able to see enough television to know that there were some buses that were taking people to certain locations. And so we, we figured that there was a bus nearby and we took it. We were the only ones on it. We didn't get, we did not pay for the bus. Was this guy driving me, my friend and I, and I don't think anyone else to more or less the Bay Bridge where there was a long line of people to get on a ferry to go across the, the bay. And I, I hate to say this, I hate to admit this, but my friend and I cut in, in front of the line <laughs> in front of, you know, a mile's worth of people. Um, so that's just what we did. And then we got on the thing and then most of the area was without electricity. So that was a very eerie sight to cross the Bay Bridge. It had a full moon going to, uh, you know, to uh, show everything. You could see the bridge, you could see Oakland, you could see San Francisco without lights. And then, then there was another bus took us to Walnut Creek. It overall took about three hours to get home. Um, and then the next day I drove to, back to, I was living, actually living in Los Angeles. Next day, my car was in Walnut Creek and I just took my car back to, back to LA. Quite a day. Yeah, well, I, I and 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 completely memorable and and hard to hard to forget. I um, I wonder. Um, I, I I guess it's sort of hard to sort of say that this is sort of the the beginning of the end of the park because it certainly had many many more you know at least another two decades worth of uh, of memories and whatnot. But uh, I, I guess the fact that it did survive to your point earlier, right, uh, is saying something. Given what it could have been, perhaps if it had been located elsewhere. Um, and a testament maybe to some of the foresight and, you know, and again, maybe design wise and, um, you know, uh, sight line wise and, and accommodations wise, maybe, you know, it wasn't sort of, uh, all that, um, the fact that it still stood while it was, you know, jam packed for one of the major sporting events in this. Saved a lot of people's lives. 
Exactly. Right. A lot of people's lives were saved. It, if you know the ballpark coming down, all those, the second deck coming down on the first deck, that's thousands of people. Uh, people underneath the stadium, that's thousands of people. You know, there, there were sixty thousand people at the ballpark. <laughs> so nobody got killed that day. No ball player. Uh, there was a lot of people. A lot of uh, feathers were ruffled. You know, there's been a lot of documentaries and they show all the, you know, Esther Canseco and all the wives of the various players gathering on the field and crying. And, uh, for, but, you know, a lot of those ballplayers were not from the Bay Area. If you're from the Bay Area, you've lived through earthquakes. That was certainly the biggest one I've ever I've ever lived through. But I've lived through earthquakes. And so, you know, you know what you know what it's like when they happen and you don't freak out um, if you're from here. All right. Well, I, I want to encourage our, our listeners, obviously, to get the book because with there's so many more little nooks and crannies to go into this co- this conversation. But let me let me just try to wrap up with with one that's sort of outside uh, uh, the sports realm. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you probably touched on this a little bit in, in the book um, where the sort of non sports events and, and in a particular, uh, a very famous uh, musical event that happened. And, and uh, it kind of. Um, uh, had an interesting bow tie at the end years afterwards, sort of in a circular, sort of a complete kind of Zen-like way. Um, do you want to talk about that final concert in 1966 by a certain group that um, a few people might know? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was a big disappointment for the <laughs> for the promoters. Um, the Beatles had uh, arrived in New York in 1964. They had swept across the country. There was Beatlemania. But they played at Candlestick Park. There were about 20,000 people, which was well below capacity. They played on the dirt infield. They did not have, they didn't fill the, 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 the field with fans, at least not all of it. There might have been some fans, but they basically were out there. It, was, it, it didn't look very good, and it didn't sound very good, and it didn't draw very well. Um, so that was the last time the Beatles played, but it was, uh, you know, if the, if they were expecting to fill it with 50, 50,000 fans, uh, it didn't happen. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, I don't think even they uh, knew at the time, or they certainly didn't let on at the time that this was their final uh, appearance live together. Um, but I thought it was also a nice, interesting sort of um, closing of the circle because in 2014, the last event in the history of Candlestick Park was that of a concert of former Beatle Paul McCartney. And I, I, there's an interesting little uh, anecdote that uh, I, there was a film made. I guess the, it's, I guess it was sort of assumed to be sort of a, a bootleg. Uh, a, a Beatles fan at the time recorded, I guess, like a half an hour's worth of that final concert. And I somehow, I well, guess... Well, that's about all they played. They didn't, they played like nine songs. It, it, it wasn't like they were there for two hours like your, some of your current, you know, they, remember in 1966, they didn't have that many songs. You know, they wrote some of their, some of their better albums came in the succeeding years. So they didn't even have that big a playlist. I mean, I think they, I think they only played something like nine or 10 minutes at Chase Stadium in 64. They didn't have any, they'd only had one album. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, but I thought it was a nice touch though. McCartney, I guess, tracked down this guy and, got uh, some footage uh, from that film to show as part of uh, his concert at the stick, which wound up becoming the last event in the sticks history. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
another big event was uh, Pope John Paul. He arrived in '87, and that was a that was a big event. Um, a lot of Catholics who live in um, in the Bay Area, so the large Latino population down by San Jose. Yeah, and I think that was the record of for for all events. I think for the park, I think it was more than seventy thousand people. I think that was probably the largest attended event of uh, of all there. I believe so. Yeah. I think he also was at Dodger Stadium too. Um, oh, he 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 made he he was very popular. <laughs> I mean, it, it was interesting that um, you know uh, John Lennon once said uh, we're more popular than Jesus, but uh, according to the attendance figures at Candlestick Park, uh, not so. <laughs> Well, that's an amazing amount of interestingness for sure. Uh, the old Candlestick Park, uh, I, you know, we just scratched the surface. Uh, and uh, more uh, interesting tidbits uh, and memories and uh, 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 things to uh, to consider, the idiosyncrasies, all of it can be found in the book. Get it. Run. Don't walk. Uh, to pick up a copy of Remembering the Stick, Candlestick Park, 1960 to 2013, by our guest this week, Steve Travers. And uh, it is published by Lions Press. And of course, it is available wherever good books are found. And we, of course, will love you to buy it through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Steve Travers, episode number 228. My goodness. And uh, you'll see a convenient link there. And by doing so, you'll be giving us a couple of pennies or nickels of, uh, of referral love. We appreciate that. But, you know, just buy the book wherever you want, by all means. Uh, you know, we're not uh, going to force you to do it that way, but we certainly appreciate you doing so. And I'm sure Steve will, too, don't you think? Uh, and, uh, of course, while you're there at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, you can find all of the episodes that we've ever done, as well as all the ones to come, uh, conveniently there for you to download or stream or whatever. The easiest way, of course, uh, though, to keep in the know and get the, the latest and freshest episodes that we publish for you every week. Uh, is to subscribe to the feed, for goodness sake, uh, you know, on Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Podcasts or, or Amazon Music or whatever, Spotify, whatever you want to do. Where, where, wherever you, know, you can find podcasts, we're out there. Uh, so there's no reason for you not to subscribe or follow or do whatever it is you do uh, to make sure that you uh, get updated uh, for the latest and greatest from our feed uh, as we publish out there. Uh, Steve, by the way, Steve Travers can be found on Twitter uh, at... S-T-Writes, that's S as in Sam, T as in Tom, Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, at S-T-Writes. So follow him there. Uh, and uh, by the way, while you're on Amazon or wherever you're searching for um, or buying Steve's book, uh, you will notice that he's got a treasure trove of other stuff. He's written uh, uh, some great stuff about uh, the Giants, baseball generally, uh, all kinds of great sports stuff uh, there uh, from the library of steve travers uh what else from us you can follow us on social media too while you're uh, while you're doing so you'll find us uh on twitter as well at good seats still you'll find us on uh instagram at good seats still available you also find us on facebook at good seats still available uh if you'd like to send us some email by all means please do so you can do that at hello at good seats still available.com uh and again while you're back on the website uh, you can sign up for our email uh, newsletter, our weekly email newsletter, he's trying to say. Uh, that's our little tip sheet on uh, what uh, each uh, coming week's episode is going to be. And uh, just uh, find the link on there conveniently and uh, give us your name and your email address. And voila, you're on the list and uh, we'll be 
in the know. Speaking of in the know, there's nobody who knows this podcasting, editing, and uh, producing game better than the one and only Jerry Payne. Yeah, that's why we uh, we continue to hound him each and every week uh, with our uh, collective pieces for him uh, to put together and, and create some semblance of, uh, of comprehensive and comprehension, I guess, for, uh, for our little audio escapades that we do for you each week. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir. We tip our, I don't know, San Francisco Giants hat in your general direction this week. Thank you, kind sir, for your efforts, as always. All right, we're going to leave you with a little something extra uh, from another memorable moment in Candlestick Park history. Uh, And uh, we kind of alluded to it sort of near the end. San Francisco uh, and Candlestick Park was not just uh, a place of sports memories, uh, and, uh, and idiosyncrasies, but it also had its fair share of uh, just uh, general events beyond the realm of sports. We hinted at uh, the uh, Papal Mass by Pope John Paul II in 1987, but before that, in 1966, August 29th, 1966, was what became, although un- perhaps unknown to most people involved, I think even the Fab Four themselves, the last ever concert featuring the, the uh, Fabulous Four of the Beatles. And uh, here's uh, a little something from that show, uh, a little uh, bootleg recording uh, that was done by, um, I think it was uh, their uh, their publicist at the time, their PR person, uh, who recorded uh, a, a snippet. Uh, his name is Barry Hood. Uh, I think it was most of the concert, but not all of it. And again, it was a fairly short concert. But here it is, uh, a little something from the final ever Beatles concert uh, at Candlestick Park. Fascinating stuff. Please take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Get your shots. Stay safe. Bye-bye.